right, let's go ahead and read our text. Then we'll open with a word of prayer, and you may be seated. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we will be in uh, verses 8 through 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort one another, wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great passage. We thank you for the promise of your sudden return. We thank you, Lord, that these, uh, these prophecies, these things, they encourage us to holy living. And we're grateful for a completed Bible, Lord, where we can uh, see the big picture and know the story. And we're grateful for the fact that you've already won the victory. Help us to apply these things, we ask, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I had a thought the other day I just want to share with you. This really isn't related to what we're reading here, but maybe it'll be an encouragement to you. In times of, uh, in discouraging times, uh, you know, with all that's been going on in the, the news and social media and such, and politically speaking, I have found with myself personally, and I believe this is true with anyone who will apply it, if you will view yourself not as a patriot, but as a missionary, you will find all that is going on much easier to deal with. Because this home is, this place is not your home. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in the, and, and don't get me wrong when I say this, because uh, you should, as God told the Jews in captivity, you pray for the peace of the place you are in. Um, you be a good citizen. If, if necessary, you take up arms in, in the military and you do what you need to do. But understand that it is so easy to get wrapped up in the stand for your country mindset and to think all of that is so good, and then you get sucked in like that into getting angry when things aren't politically the way they should be, America will never be a millennial kingdom. It never was, and it never will be. Uh, the governments of man are clearly depicted in Daniel chapter 2. They're, they're a, a, a teeter, teeter-tottering statue. The heaviest metal of Daniel chapter 2, if you examine that statue, the heaviest metal was on top. The weakest was on the bottom. And it was, uh, um, it was not uh, well balanced. It was very unstable. Okay? And then that rock, our Lord Jesus Christ, the stone cut out without hands, smashed the image to pieces. That is man's government. And the best of man's government is nothing more than that statue. Okay, so just think of yourself as not a patriot, but a missionary, because that's what we are. That is exactly what we are. Anyway, uh, hopefully that'll help a little bit. First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, in verse eight, we are going to pick up with the helmet of salvation. Don't have slides this morning. As we wrap up some of these thoughts, we will have some next week as we examine. Uh, if the Lord doesn't come back, we will examine why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, and there are many, many different arguments and proofs of that, proofs of that. But let's look at the last point here, loving and confident. If you're in your student guide, uh, chapter 5, verses 8b through 10, salvation will protect our minds. 
Salvation will protect our minds. Uh, The future judgment will be uniquely severe. Uh, There will be nothing like it. Uh, Nothing has ever been like it before. Nothing will be like it in the future. And there are four passages that tell us this truth. So just uh, let's do a sword drill here. If you'll come with me to Matthew chapter 24 and look at verse 21. Matthew chapter 4 verse 21. The future coming judgment will be unique. And I was reading a commentator earlier this week who said, well, if, if there's anything else like something that's unique, then unique has lost its uniqueness. <laughs> okay, so there will be absolutely nothing like what is coming. And we have to keep that in mind so that we don't miss, mix our eschatology. But Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, Jesus said, For then, speaking of the future, shall be great tribulation, such as was not, since the beginning of the world to this time no nor ever shall be Uh, look at jeremiah chapter 30 jeremiah chapter 30 again speaking of the coming tribulation upon israel Uh, jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 alas for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, and that's an important phrase to remember as we deal with why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Turn with me to Daniel. I'll try to do this in order so we have less turning. Daniel chapter 12, and look at verse 1. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. You know, just as a side note, you know Michael's name, Michael, Michael, means who is like God. There's none like God, isn't there? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Uh, Anyway, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at, that time, and at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. And then finally, look at Joel, chapter 2. We were just there with pastors who studied through Joel. But Joel, chapter 2, verse 2, a day of darkness, speaking of the day of the Lord. If you back up just a bit, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. And I believe that, uh, as as Pastor um, mentioned, that uh, a lot of the things that were happening in Israel at that time were foreshadowing of things that would come, and ultimately the day of the Lord. So it is going to be a very, very bad time. And why do I bring this out? Well, I bring it out because when you think about how bad it's going to be and the wrath of God that's going to be poured out, it is a great comfort to your mind to know that in Jesus Christ, you have escaped that wrath. And uh, we can't think of the wrath of God as solely an escape from hell, though I do believe the wrath of God is uh, picturing that. The wrath of God is also talking about the judgment that's coming upon the whole world. Uh, We can't miss, as we study through Revelation, that phrase, the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God. 
and the great, great winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. And so the tribulation is part of that wrath. You as a believer have escaped that, not because of any good works, but because of the fact that you are hidden in Jesus Christ. And so that truth is now a helmet to protect your mind. Amen. When Satan would say, hey, huh? think about what's coming. Aren't you going to be afraid? Or uh, are you sure you're going to make it? After all, you haven't been a very good Christian or you haven't been a very good person. When those temptations creep in and the fears of the world start to knock at your door, that the truth that you are a child of God and will be removed from any part of God's wrath is a helmet to your mind. It should be. Uh, and it's interesting in Ephesians chapter 6 that Paul also calls salvation there a helmet. Uh, there he calls the breastplate that of righteousness. Here it is the breastplate of faith and love, and we looked at why that is. But in both places he talks about the helmet being the helmet of salvation. And so it's a, it is a protectant. It, is a, it protects your mind when fears would creep in. We are preserved from the coming wrath, which, which is against a lost world. It says in verse 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Uh, and so we're kind of going to be delving a little bit into this. I guess really what I'm about to explain is a point as to why you and I would believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And uh, we'll mention this again next week just to kind of summarize our points. But we're going to visit this, this concept right now. Uh, why do we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? Because... At the end, uh, in the book of Revelation, after chapter 4, or after chapter 3, when God is done talking to the churches, uh, he then moves into his dealings with the earth, the lost earth. And he uses the phrase, them that dwell on the earth, numerous, numerous, numerous times. And that is who his dwellings are with, and, and that is, in context, the lost of the earth. But his wrath is against them. Go with me to Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 through 17. And because of this, Paul says, uh, God has not appointed you to wrath. His wrath is for uh, the lost, uh, wicked world. And as one commentator pointed out, and I'd like to bring this out, I believe it's a good point. This is not just some uncontrolled, blow-up, furious anger like you and I would experience. right? Like, I've had it with you, I'm done, and you just start wailing on somebody. This is the idea of something that has been calculated and it has been stored up. And it is a passionate, righteous thing, and it has filled to the full, and it's time to be poured out in a specific way, in a specific manner, to accomplish a specific purpose. When you and I get wrathful and blow up, there really is no specific purpose except to appease ourselves. We don't really care about the other person, or sometimes we don't care, depending how bad it is, of, of causing physical harm or, or, or danger. We just, we want to appease ourselves. That's the way God deals with things. He doesn't deal with things that way. And even in his wrath, his boiling, seething anger that we see in Revelation, there's still a plan. And it's very organized. And it accomplishes what it needs to accomplish every step of the way. But Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, looking at this concept that God has preserved his wrath for a lost world, the world cries out and says uh, to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Look over to chapter 11, and look at verse 16 there. Chapter 11, verse 16. 
And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O God, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great. Uh, I don't want to read too much into the text, but you can also hear uh, him covering every saint of every dispensation there, Old Testament, New Testament, those who would die in the tribulation, uh, and shouldest destroy them, which destroy the earth. And there's a, he uses that phrase a lot in Revelation, them that dwell on the earth, them that destroy the earth, the earth dwellers. And God's wrath is against them. Consistently in context, he's dealing with them. I'll look at chapter 14. Chapter 14. In verses 9 and 10. Chapter 14, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And then verse 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great, great winepress of the wrath of God. And if we were to read on, we'd find out that wrath is against uh, the uh, armies of Satan, against basically it's the battle of Armageddon. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Or excuse me, verses 1 and 7. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Verse 7, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And these things are poured out on a lost earth. They're poured out on lost men. Uh, in fact, even with tribulation saints, and this is one reason I believe we can um, hold to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, is the principle, and I'm giving away some of the things we're going to look at next week, is the principle of how God protects his own. I don't believe it's one of the strongest arguments for a pre-tribulational rapture, but I do believe it's an argument. But even in the tribulation, what will God do to those who are saved in the tribulation to protect them? Anybody remember? Yes. He does. He seals them in their foreheads. In fact, at the beginning, if we were to read the end of chapter 6 and 7, the Lord tells the angel, he says, uh, touch not the earth. Let not the wind blow upon it until we have sealed the saints of God in their foreheads, right? And then we read that 144,000, oh, the JWs, right? No, just kidding. 144,000 were sealed <laughs> of the tribes of all the tribes of Israel. So even there, God's wrath is not poured out on his saints. Yeah, they are killed by the world. Persecution and wrath aren't the same thing. Understand that. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. God's wrath is against them, but the persecution and wrath are not the same. And so even there we see God protecting his own. But this wrath is always against the lost world. Chapter 16, verse 1, we see the wrath of God again 
poured out of these vials upon the earth. And then all kinds of terrible things happen, darkness and sores. Uh, and this is uh, like God is just building up uh, for this final climax of his uh, destruction of the beast's kingdom through these vials that are poured out. Verse 19, we see the wrath of God mentioned again. Chapter 19, verse 15, we see the lamb return. And it says, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so this is an unprecedented time of God's wrath against the wicked. And in light of that, it's fitting that Paul should tell you and I, through the Holy Spirit, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but rather to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, As a side note, I wrote this in my notes, so I'll just mention it. After chapter 3 of Revelation, you do not see or hear of the church mentioned again. And like I said, the predominant phrase you see from that point on is they that dwell on the earth. And so that would, again, be a, uh, a reason to believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, it's just we're not there. You don't find us. The New Testament church there, you see saints, yes. You see people that saved. You see them witnessing for the Lamb, chapter 14, or chapter 7, chapter 14. But you don't see the church mentioned again. Verse 9, or verse 10 uh, he says, we have not, uh, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Okay, so Christ has paid the, the dues. He is our propitiation, according to 1 John chapter 2. The Lord tells us, and he, meaning Jesus Christ, is the propitiation. Big word. You know what it means? It means literally the appeasement of God's wrath. And, but a full idea, if I can add to it, tack on a few amplifying statements, It would be the appeasement of God's wrath toward my sin through the judgment upon Jesus Christ. And so Christ took that for me. And Paul makes that statement, uh, he makes an allusion to that here when he says, who died for us. So he reminds us of the fact that, okay, you can't purify yourself, make yourself any more sanctified than you already are as far as positional sanctification. It's already a done deal. Jesus has already died for you. And that's why you're not appointed to wrath. Then he says, um, and some people would slip my throat for, for um, saying this, but it's what the Bible says, and so I'm going to share it with you. And if this makes you angry, I don't think it would anyone in this room, but if, it, if this, what I'm about to say makes someone angry, then honestly they are struggling with self-righteousness and the unbiblical belief of perseverance. Meaning, I have to continue doing good to the end in order to maintain my salvation. They may not actually say that, but if they get angry about what I'm about to say, they actually probably believe that in their heart. Because, and he says, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Um, Remember I told you earlier in the lesson, if you go to verse 6 and look at the word watch... If you highlight it, also highlight wake in verse 10 because they are the exact same word. Uh, Gregoreo, from which we get the, the uh, English name Gregory, meaning awake, to be alert. So this word is consistently translated that way throughout the New Testament. Now, if you look at a Greek lexicon, which are not infallible, by the way, 
Okay, a lexicon is not infallible. A lexicon is an amazing tool. And without one, we could not translate the scriptures into a language that we can understand. So I'm not downplaying their importance or their accuracy. They're very accurate, but they're not infallible. And I believe this is one place where they could lead you a little bit astray. It will tell you, the lexicon will tell you that this word is translated wake, to stay awake or to be alert throughout the entire New Testament. And at the very end, it will say, well, it could also be translated alive, meaning to live. And it will list this verse as a reason for translating it that way. But that's the only verse it lists. I don't believe that's what Paul's saying here. I don't believe he's saying that whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we should live together with him. I believe he's literally saying according to the context, because what has he just warned us about? Has he warned us about death? No, that was back in chapter 4. He's just warned us about being spiritually alert versus being spiritually asleep. Okay? So what he's saying is, who died for us, that whether we are spiritually awake or spiritually asleep, we should live together with him. Now you see why that might make some people really mad? Because they'd be like, well, wait a minute, you're preaching that you can be spiritually alert and be a good Christian, uh, spiritually asleep and be a good Christian and still go to heaven. I didn't say that. I didn't say you could be a, a good Christian, but you're still going to heaven. That's right. That is what it is. You know, otherwise, if you don't believe what I've just said, which is biblical from other passages, then you're struggling with perseverance of the saints, where I have to maintain my salvation by doing good to the very end. Okay. So whether you're spiritually asleep or spiritually awake, we should live together with him because he's already accomplished it all. Remember, go, we go back to 1 Corinthians. Paul writes to a carnal church and he tells them, hey, you're sanctified. It's a done deal. You are in Christ. It's a done deal. And then he goes on and lists all their many, 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 many problems. Some for which they died because God said, that's enough. I'm bringing you home. You're no longer a good testimony to me. Okay. Uh, James chapter 5 uh, um, in the oil of uh, uh, anointing, uh, uh, he brings in the oil and he anoints the sick. Okay, that's not for healing. There's confusion with that. That was a medicinal thing in the Old Testament, the New Testament times. It was a common practice. They didn't have the medicine that we have. And sometimes anointing with oil could ease the pain of someone. And so when he says, when you pray over them and the oil of, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. If you examine the context of that, likely there was sin that they were dealing with and that's why they were sick and that's why the prayer of faith would save the sick and it wasn't just oh well if you're sick you get pray and have some oil anointed over you and you're guaranteed to be healed no people have tried that and it's ended in a lot of disappointment and confusion so if we take that rather as as james warning those who had sinned hey get right with god call for the elders of the church have them confess anoint you with oil, praying over you in the name of the lord get this right the prayer of faith will save the sick if that's why you're sick um, and that I'm not, you know, if somebody disagrees with that, I'm not argumentative about it, but that is what I believe that's saying. And so here we have people who are not right, people who die in the Lord, they die doing wrong things, but they're saved, they're still going to heaven. And it's comforting, it's a helmet of salvation to our minds to know that whether I'm, you know, whether I do well, or whether I fall asleep and fall off the Christian wagon, so to speak, I'm still going to heaven. Yeah, there's, yeah, I'm not going to be happy to see Jesus, which is a shame. Yeah. And there are things that are going to burn up, and there are judgment seat things that are going to be mentioned. I'm going to receive the things done in my body, not in my soul. Those things have been taken care of in Christ. Condemnation has been cleared. I've been saved from the wrath of God. But there will be rewards to lose 
but I'm still going to be in heaven. Okay, I'm still going to be in heaven. So whether you wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And again, if someone you know is just adamant that this means alive or dead, I'm not angry at them or would I argue about it. Um, but I firmly believe based on the context and the word and how it's used other places that this is really the only honest way I can deal with it. And honestly, in my self-righteous flesh, it's a little unpalatable to give you that translation because I want to think, well, I got to do good to the end, you know. That's the self-righteous nature that's alive in all of us. There's got to be something I can do. I got to do that. You know, I got to stick in there. I got to hang in there. and I got to be this and I got to be that. And though it's good to do things, it's always in the power of the spirit, not in the power of the flesh. And so let that be a comfort to your mind. Yes, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But if for some reason you fall off the Christian wagon, if you're saved, you're still going to heaven and you're still saved from the wrath of God. Uh, you may not have confidence when you see him like you and I should, but we will still see him. And then he ends with, wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. So comfort yourself together, but also build each other up. Um, build each other up. Comfort yourselves because the Lord Jesus is coming back and we have security. But edify each other and build each other up because we want to be ready to see Jesus when he comes. Okay? There's that confidence. We need to be ready to see him when he comes. So let's edify one another. Look at Romans chapter 14, verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter 14, verses 8 through 13. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? This is the idea of self-righteous judgment, if you looked at the context, dealing specifically with diets and days. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Speaking of the biblical principle, that the verse Isaiah 45, 23 is really in the context of Christ's second coming, to judge the earth, but the principle of judgment is the same. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, that fleshly, self-righteous uh, based judgment. This is not a command not to edify or to build up or to rebuke even if sin is in the life, but rather um, judging of diets and days and things that are personal preferences. But judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, it is to him it is unclean. So edify each other. Instead of uh, uh, flopping around with uh, self-righteous judgment and tearing each other down, let's build each other up in the Lord, because whether we live or die, we are the Lord's, and we're going to see him again someday. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. There's that desire to not be ashamed at the appearance of Jesus Christ. Yes, whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with him, but that's not an excuse to not be alert and to not be doing what we can to honor him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and it won't be a pleasant thing if we haven't lived for him. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. This is not condemnation of sins that I've committed and being cast into hell, but rather uh, the loss or gain of rewards. God keeps tabs of how I live my Christian life for him. And there's a way he wants me to live it. And no, he's not hovering over me with an axe or a hammer. He is ever merciful and ever gracious, but he is also um, will by no means acquit wickedness. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf. We'll stop there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. We often quote this, and so today we'll read it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. <clears throat> Back up to verse 27. But the anointing, which is the Spirit of God, given to the believer, which ye have received of him, abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you. That's not some, uh, I knew a guy who thought, well, I don't need a Bible teacher. I don't need a preacher. I just come to church to basically hear what I already know. No, that's not what this is saying. (laughs) But there is that infallible Spirit of God that's in you that bears witness to truth. You know, and, and I can explain truth to you all day long, and you can explain it to me, but if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. It's just not going to make sense. It's not going to, um, it's not going to, there's no light bulb that's going to come on. You know, and so that's what really what he's saying. Not that you don't ever need anybody to help you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he doeth righteousness, everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him, if you know that he is righteous. And so, uh, walk with him, abide in him. Chapter 3, the same book. Look at verse 19. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Living a good Christian life doesn't get you saved or keep you saved, but I tell you what, it sure does a lot to build up your confidence that you're right with the Lord. Um, I was dealing with a guy in the Navy, and he's like, you know, I, I believed in Christ. I, I repented of my sins, asked him to save me, but I'm just not sure I'm saved. I looked him dead in the eye and said, well, it's because you're so carnal and wicked. I said, you might be saved. I said, but you're, you're living such a bad life that there's no confidence there. You know, what is there to really assure you that other than uh, the scriptures, that you're not, your life doesn't jive with the scriptures, and so there's just no confidence. Why don't you just try cleaning up your act, not for salvation, but just to be right with the Lord and start serving him instead of serving yourself. We were still friends after that, by the way. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. So if we don't do well and mess up, God still knows that we're his children Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. So that's a good thing. Don't walk around like Paul said, I have, I have lived a life always to be uh, void of, uh, uh, to be clear in conscience toward God and man, to be void of offense toward God and man. And he did that for a reason. It was not only for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Uh, chapter 5, verse 13 and 15, same book. Chapter 5, verse 13 and 15. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. 
And if we know that we hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And we're not going to ask anything according to his will if we're not living for him because we're going to be out of touch with his will. And so it's important to be right with the Lord. So Paul says, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Yes, there's that comfort of the mind that you're saved regardless, but don't forget edification is important. Building each other up is important. Remember what Jesus said? If any man um, that do my doctrine, how did he say that? I can't remember what chapter it is, but it's in John. He's talking to his disciples. If any man um, love my father, he shall know of the doctrine. Uh, And I may have that slightly wrong, but look it up. Look it up sometime. But basically, if you're not walking with the Lord, you're not going to understand what he's trying to tell you. If you're so in tune with the world, you're not going to pick up on things in the scriptures as you read them. And so it's important to be in tune with God so that you can understand and apply the Bible. I found that the Bible makes a whole lot more sense to me when I'm walking with the Lord and my mind isn't filled with the world. When my mind is filled with the world, I have a harder time getting things out of the Bible. When I ask the Lord to purge that and I just come back again and refocus on him and his word, uh, things come more easily from the scriptures. Well, why is it? Well, it's because you're letting the spirit uh, shine through instead of the flesh. All right, I thought we would get into some points as to why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, and we sort of did, but um, I'm not going to touch on anything else. We're going to wrap it up there next week, Lord willing, unless Jesus uh, uh, comes back with his sudden return, we will um, move into a number of reasons. There are a number as to why we would believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I'm not going to beat a dead horse on why we believe in a rapture. I hope by this point in time we understand why we believe in a rapture. If we don't, then I either haven't been clear or you haven't been listening. One of the two, maybe both. But um, So we'll hit why we believe in a pre-trib. That's really where people get hung up. Does the Lord come back at the middle of the tribulation? Does the wrath of God not really start till the three and a half year point? Do people come back at the end of the... Does Christ come in the clouds at the end, grab us all up, then immediately come back with us? And make two landings, at, it, does, it doesn't really make any sense unless you do a pre-trib rapture. And so we'll talk about that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with you. And that is a promise of your word. We're grateful for it. But we know, Lord, that there's a responsibility in our lives as well to walk with you, to honor you, that others might uh, see Christ in us and might be drawn to the Lord. And, uh, Lord, we don't, certainly don't want anyone's blood on our head. As you told Ezekiel, Lord, if the watchman blows the trumpet when he sees danger coming, then uh, those who take not warning and are taken away, uh, their blood is on their own head. But uh, if he doesn't blow the trumpet and the people are taken away, the blood's on our head. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to blow that trumpet, not just verbally, but with our lives as well. And help us to remember uh, that our testimony is seen by many, even when we think it's not. In Jesus' name we pray.